Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Malachi, Malachi chapter 1 this morning. Um, if you are new with us or you've been around, we, we've been in the middle of a series in the Old Testament prophets, and those are the, those little, actually the minor prophets, which are those little tiny books that you probably flip over really fast and miss in your Bible, um, if you're familiar with the scriptures, or you just say, I'm not going to read those, it seems like there's a lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation, I'm just going to go hang out um, in John 3.16 or the Psalms somewhere, it's not as, as uh, condemning, uh, but we've really been enjoying uh, walking through this series because even in the midst of of what feels like judgment and con- condemnation is just these seeds of grace and these seeds of hope that, that are woven through. Uh, we looked at Zephaniah and Haggai, and now we're going to look at Malachi uh, this morning. These, these seeds of hope that even in the ruins, even when God's people seem to be banished, losing their way, even when they, they're sinning and, and worshiping other gods, that God is still faithful and God is still gracious and God is still kind and still pursues a people for his name. And that gives me great comfort that even when I'm unfaithful, that God still pursues me um, and, and brings me to himself. And so that, that's hopefully some threads and, and themes that have been coming out for you um, uh, in the last few weeks. And so we're going to spend a few more weeks in Malachi, um, and then we'll finish up the series uh, at the end of um, September-ish. Um, and so if you have a Bible, Malachi chapter 1, we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you, page 801 in your Bible, um, and it's probably on the screen as well. So I'm going to read that, Malachi uh, chapter 1, and then we'll uh, pray and ask for for God's help. So Malachi chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, sorry, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that the lame are sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Could you guys turn me up just as a tad? Thank you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for a book like Malachi. 
that reminds us again that, that even when we come with our lame worship and our half-baked worship, that you're still at work in our lives, that you still love us. And, and it's hard sometimes when we look at books from the Old Testament, it feels so far removed from our day and our culture, and it's hard to understand at times what you are trying to say to us. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, you would illuminate our hearts and minds to hear and receive from you, God. And I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we'd also be doers as well. So help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been, as I said, looking at these Old Testament minor prophets, and we've looked at these seasons and times in, in redemptive history. If we go back to Zephaniah, we, we see pre-exile, so before God's people were sent into Babylonian exile, and, and, and how they were, they were ruling and railing before God was going to, to, see, to uh, banish them to the Babylonians, there was already a small remnant that was already in exile, and God was even using them to teach them that, hey, don't, don't be like them, you have an opportunity here. And then we, we looked at how guy that was post-exile and, and the temple had been um, was going to be restored and, and they had come back and, and things just weren't looking well. And, and Malachi is going to also pick up in the post-exile time where the temple now has been built. It's about 80 years after the temple and yet they find themselves in a place that is not great. That in times of old when David was king and the temple was thriving and the glory of God was there, Things seem to be going well spiritually and economically, but now you have this small remnant of Israel that is reeling and railing. They're not this independent state anymore. They're they're under foreign rule. There's only a small amount of them. Economically, it's not going well. The temple's rebuilt, but just things aren't the way that they used to be. And so the way that Malachi picks that theme up is the question of, does God still love us? And that's the question that God's people are asking we look at our circumstances and we go, does God still love us? And I think that's a very relevant question, isn't it, to ask? Um, you know, we look at outside and we look at our lives and we see this disconnect and we see maybe our relationship with God has grown cold and we go, does God even still love us? I mean, look what I'm going through. Look at the pain I'm having to go through. Look at job loss and cancer and struggle and depression and anxiety. Does God still love us? And that's the question that God is speaking through Malachi to the people. And so I want to look at that just for a few moments here this morning. That they're beginning to doubt God's love. But I want to frame it this way. I want to say, first talk about a question about God's love. That's where we begin, is is why are they questioning God's love? And and how does that work itself out? I want to look at a test for what for how we see God's love, like do we even understand how this love even works, and then a solution for resting in God's love. And hopefully that will be really helpful for you uh, as we think about these ideas. So a question about God's love. Notice how the the book begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to, to Israel by Malachi. This word oracle is actually translated in the Hebrew burden. So So this is an idea of a burden. You're expecting judgment to come. That God is speaking through Malachi, and he has these, I think, six different oracles. So he's going to kind of address different things going on in the community and address what's going on. And so the first one that he's going to address is this issue of God's love. They're questioning God's love. And and so you're expecting this word of judgment. Like he's going to come out and say, how dare you question my love? But look what he says in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have 
hated. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. But isn't that just kind of an unexpected response? It's like they're, they're, they're going, you know, things just aren't, aren't going well. It just, I wish we, we lived in a different time. I, I wish that we could go back to the former glory days when the temple was thriving and David was our, our king way back when, the, the stories we heard from our ancestors. And yet God comes and he says, the first word out of his mouth is, I love you. But we know that the writing's on the wall because notice how even though God says, I love you, they already begin to question and doubt his love, right? How have you loved us? <laughs> now, if I were to ask my, or tell my wife, Christy, I love you, and she goes, well, how do you love me? Prove it. Like, that's not a good sign, right? I mean, it's a good sign if I say, you know, honey, I love you. And she goes, oh, I love you too. Thank you for loving me. But if she's going, give me evidence that this is even true, this is already a sign of a broken relationship on the human level, right? So if, if Israel's going, if God's saying, I love you, and they say, well, how have you loved us? Something has, horribly has gone wrong. Because we know by evidence that God has loved them well. You could go back into Egyptian slavery, that God delivered them from the Egyptians, from oppression, and he was delivering them into the, the promised land, that he protected them when they, when they, in the conquest of Canaan, in the glory days with David, when David ruled and Jerusalem was, was thriving. So you could, you could look and say, that's not true. God has shown all kinds of evidence that I love you. But like I said, things aren't good in Jerusalem right now. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's just not the same. It's a small little group of people. They're, they're under other rulers, and, and, and the, the money's not there. The, the community's not thriving. It's just not the same. They're limping along. And so they're questioning, God, do you, do you even still love us? It seems like it's just not the way it's supposed to be. And like I said, I, I think that's a question that we probably ask a lot. And it's usually based on our circumstances, right? Well, you know, the, the job's not working out. Kids are difficult. Marriage is hard. You're right. I have cancer. You know, I'm sick. I, you know, I got anxiety. Whatever it is. And we go, God, is this, is this what life is? I think we all could, can relate to Israel when things aren't going the way we want it to. But, but notice with me how God answers the question, do you love me? He actually doesn't go into a litany of, well, remember in Egypt, remember this, remember that? He actually doesn't. Here's what he does. He, he, he gives them two comparisons. And, and the first comparison is between Jacob and Esau. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to, to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so there's two comparisons here. He says, I'm going to compare my love to Jacob and Esau, and then I'm going to compare it to, to Edom, which Edom was actually the descendants of Esau. Uh, the, the folks that God didn't like. And so they ended up, you know, being in Israel during the exile, and they actually were thriving and doing well. They were protected in this mountain region, and it's like Edom is, is thriving. They're, they're the seed of, of Esau, the one you didn't even like, and yet they're doing well. So I don't understand, God. Well, how can you say that you even love us? And it's a good question. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 25... If you've been around the scriptures, you might be familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. Maybe not. But Isaac has, um, I say technically Isaac didn't give birth, but Re Rebekah gave birth to Esau and Jacob. 
After many years, they're barren. He's about 60 years old. He gives birth to Esau and Jacob. They weren't even expecting children. God does this miracle through them. And if you look at verse 23, Genesis 25, 23, it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from with you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and his body like a hairy cloak. Any hairy babies in the crowd? So they called his name Esau. This is most likely a redhead. I have, I have two, technically I have three, including my wife, redheads in, in our home, right? And so, so these redheads, and, and redheads are typically, and it's really interesting, I think scripture even verifies this, they're fiery and they can be stubborn. <laughs> like they are. They just are. If you're a redhead, you know you're fiery and stubborn. Just like Esau. Esau was fiery and stubborn. He was the stubborn child, right? He, he wanted to do his own thing. He was the, the guy out in the wilderness doing his own thing, right? A little side note. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When, she, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. He was kind of a wandering, just crazy man, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so before they're even born, God is already choosing to say, Jacob is going to be my chosen man, and Esau isn't. Now that, that, that may not seem very fair, but what's so interesting, if you look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, these guys are not good guys. Jacob was not a moral good person. Just because he stayed at home and loved to watch baking shows and cook with his mom, that didn't make him any better than Esau, who was out in the wilderness. Now, if you go, and I don't have time this morning to go through their stories, but you'll notice these are not great men, neither of them. For example, you know, the, Jacob's going to go, and he's going to you know, rule over his brother. Esau's going to eventually be out in the wilderness, but so is, is Jacob. Because Jacob is the one who, while his... his um, uh, father is, you know, blind and in a tent, comes and wants to take his birthright from his, his father. When he's in this vulnerable position, he comes and he says, hey, I want to take this, you know, take this birthright that belongs to me. No, he's not a great guy. And then Esau, in a moment of weakness, he's out hunting and he comes home and he's hungry and he, he's like, hey, I'll trade you the birthright for uh, some soup. Okay, great. And they work it out. So there's these, these moments in their lives. These aren't good dudes. They, these aren't people that are just following God, love God, worship God. They have all kinds of issues if you really dig into their, their story. Now, I have a point behind that. It's because when we think of the question of God electing someone or God saying, Jacob is my chosen one, but Esau is not. I think we go, well, that, that's unfair. That's totally unfair. But the better question is, why does God choose anyone? He doesn't have to. Because it's not based on goodness or morality, is it? So, so just like you and I, here's these people who rebel against God, who want nothing to do with God, and yet we go, well, God, you should just allow me to go to heaven because that's where I should be because I'm a good person. But our whole lives we could spend rebelling against God and God's supposed to choose us and love us, right? God doesn't have to choose anyone, but he does in his grace and in his mercy. And that's the entire story of scripture. That's the entire uh, story of, of the gospel is that God chooses not because he has to, but because he loves and he loves to show grace and goodness towards his people. So the better question is why should God choose anyone? Jacob and Esau were not good people. Israel 
was having a tough time. They're doubting God's love. They're doubting their circumstance. They're saying, well, God, I mean, what is this? Why, why, are we, why do we find ourselves in this position? I'm reminded of, of Deuteronomy 7. It's probably one of my, my favorite texts. Just, I, I come back to it a lot. I, I've probably mentioned it in sermons quite a few times. But, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains his love towards us in, in very poignant ways. So Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's talking about Israel and us, if you want to fast forward to the New Testament. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people. So that there's no, you know, because of your power, because of your prestige, that the Lord set his love on you and shows you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That, that, and we could go to chapter 8 and say, when you get into the land, remember that everything you have was a gift of grace to you. That it wasn't because of your might or because of your morality or because of your intellect or because of your experience, but it was the grace of God in your lives that you have anything. So don't, don't think it's because it's, it's you that God is blessing because of your goodness, but it's because of my sheer mercy and my sheer grace and my sheer love that I've chosen you to be my people, to be my treasured possession. So here's Israel questioning God's love, and the better question is, why should God love anyone? But yet he loves to shower grace and mercy on his people. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 picks up this theme from, from Malachi and from uh, Jacob and Esau. In Romans chapter uh, 9, you might know the text, but, but Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 9 to 11, this really hits home, makes it very clear. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about the time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Did you catch it? It's him who calls. It's God who takes the initiative. It had nothing to do with Jacob and, and, and Esau. God did not look at their lives and, and say, okay, well, I'm going to let them live their lives, and then I'm going to decide. I'm going to kind of see it in time and space and go, okay, this one's going to, he's going to do a lot of good things, so I'm going to choose him. It had nothing to do with that. It was not by their good works, but it's by the one who calls. Still seem unfair. Well, I think unfair would be God saying, none of you are going to be called ever. I reject all of you. But yet God's grace and God's goodness is the story of our lives and the story of the scriptures. Unfair would be to say, you know what? Everyone deserves hell. Everyone deserves to be banished. Everyone deserves, I mean, look at Israel, right? I mean, this ragtag group that just can't seem to get their act together. And God could have just said, I mean, if he's like me, I'm a dad, and, and, and maybe you're a dad or you're a mom, and, and you know, I, I love my kids, but, you know, there's, there's times where you just go like, this is really, really difficult, and I just want to give up, right? 
But, but I know as a, as a good father, I would never stop loving my kids, even when they, they keep screwing up. And they don't stop loving me. I screw up, too. And my wife, too. I mean, things you've heard to say, you know what, this marriage thing is just not worth the time and worth the effort. And on a human level, that's where we go, right? But God says, no, 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 no. That's not how, how this works. I set my promises. I call my people, and I never break my promises. I love you not because of your worthiness, but because I'm worthy and I'm at work in your, your life. So, so they begin to question God's love. He compares them to Jacob and Esau, and we see that this, this choosing love, this, this, this love that, that God has poured out on them to be his people and to use them for redemptive history. But he also uses a second comparison, that's Edom. And as I mentioned earlier, Edom are the descendants of Esau, so the people that, that God didn't choose, they, they kind of go down the, the wrong track. And during exile, again, Edom's in this nice, comfy mountain region, and they're thriving, and they're actually helping other nations, you know, attack Israel. So they're, they're just not good people at all. But notice what it says in verse, uh, if you go back to, to uh, Malachi, verse 4 and 5, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So they see, they go, God, you can't love us. I mean, look at Edom. Look, I mean, these are the ones you didn't even choose, and they're off in comfy, you know, nice, comfortable land, thriving, doing well. And God says, No, 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 don't worry. They're, they're not going to thrive forever. That's a promise to you. You are my chosen people. You are my loved ones. Now, your circumstances may seem difficult. They may not look the way you, you, you seem to be, and, and, and things might not be going well for you right in this moment, but I promise you things will always work out with me because my promises hold true. Isn't that a great word for you this morning and for me this morning? That same word that God spoke to Israel is the same God that speaks to us today. The things on the external, things on the outward, that there's not enough money in the bank, the body's breaking down, difficulty with kids and marriage, whatever it is, whatever you're walking in right now, God says, just in the end, everything will, will be okay. That even through suffering, I do some of my best work. And I know I can, I can say that wholeheartedly. Um, I don't welcome suffering. Maybe you, you're, you're into that. Uh, maybe it's just like, yeah, God, just more suffering. Because if you give me more suffering, I know there's a chance to just sanctify me and make me wise and more hopeful. Because I know the scriptures say it'll, it'll bolster my faith. So please give me more suffering. That's just not me. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're just more godly than me. Um, but I know through suffering, God has used it tremendously in my life. You know, so part of our story, we, our second child passed away after four days. And I don't wish that on anyone. I don't want anyone to ever walk through that. But when I look back after eight or nine years, I realize that God has used that in a million ways that I could, I could never thank him enough. And most of those things were for me to realize, Ryan, you're a very self-sufficient person. And you believe that because you're a pastor that somehow I owe you a good, easy life. And I had those things going on in my heart. Well, God, I've given my life to serve you. I've gone, you know, sacrifice. I mean, I went to seminary for crying out loud. I went into debt for you. I went into debt for the glory of God so I could parse the Greek words, God. And this is what I get in payment and repay for, for this, right? 
And I had those thoughts, but God used that and worked through me so that, that I could be, you know, my wife maybe not testify, but be a little more compassionate, a little more understanding that, 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 get, that we're not owed any perfect life on this life. But I know these promises are, are true, that God does love us because the cross speaks to that. And so God reminds them that he's going to bring in all people. If you saw that in verse 5, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, that he has this plan that it's not even just for Israel, but it's also eventually for the Gentiles as well. We see that in Amos chapter 9. I won't go there this morning. And also Acts 15. That this plan of redemption was not even, even as they looked at their lives, they go, well, it just seems like what we're looking at, God, that's not going very well. But he's saying, I even have a bigger plan than what you even see in your little uh, time and in your place that all tribes and tongue and nations will come in through the gospel. So a question about God's love, it's so easy to look at our circumstances and say it's very evident that he doesn't love us anymore or love me anymore. But I think woven also, if we look at, we're going to look at the second oracle this morning because there's two in this first chapter. I think there's a great test for how we see God's love. That, that if we're in that place this morning, or maybe you're wondering, am I in that place this morning? Look at what happens when we begin to doubt God's love, or we, we begin to look at our circumstances and say, God, it's very apparent you're, you're not here, and, and you're not working, and something's going uh, obviously wrong. Notice what happens uh, to the people of Israel. Notice what happens with the priests here. This is very evident. Uh, here's a little test. How do we know if, if we're doubting God's love? For us, or, or, or not seeing his love in, in the ways that he would want us to see it. Well, he says, a son, verse 6, honors his father and a servant, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest, who despise my name. So, so first, the, the, he's addressing the priests. So the priests were the ones that were to bring the offering. They, they represented the people of God. And so they were, in many ways, we talk about Jesus being our high priest. He's the one who makes the perfect sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, there's these, these priests who, who would bring the offering to God to, to, for the forgiveness of their sins. And this is how they worship God. They had a mediator, these, these uh, local priests. But notice what he says. He says that a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? They're, they're, they're coming very arrogantly. They're coming very flippantly. They're not coming with honor and fear and respect before the Lord. They're just coming kind of cold-heartedly. There, here you go. All right? A sign that they're, they're looking at their circumstances and going, you know, I don't even think God loves us. I mean, the temple is, is built and things aren't happening and we're struggling. I don't really understand this. And so even the priests are being uh, affected and they're the ones that are supposed to represent the people of God. But, but he goes on and he, he, he identifies more problems. He, he says in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? I love that. It's a little sarcasm there. Wait, so you, you bring your, your little lame lamb that has like a broken leg to the altar? You're supposed to bring a pure spotless lamb. So, so if you were going to sit down with the governor and, and if you were to sit down with no, nobility, what would you do? You would bring a very nice gift, right? I mean, probably like a nice, you know, Starbucks mug with like a gift card inside, like a little note, maybe some flowers. I, I don't know what you bring to a governor, but 
But right, you bring something, right? This is a governor. This is royalty, right? And so, so he, he's using that analogy to say, you're just bringing me these lame lambs with broken legs that these aren't worthy of me. I'm the God. I'm the king of kings. I, I'm your, your God, your creator. I'm the one who's saving you, redeeming you. I'm providing for you. And yet you're coming here with this little weak little gift, bringing your half-baked worship to me. See, it's, it, it could be a, a sign of us not understanding and embracing the love of God. We're doubting his love. So here, here's just half. Here's just a little. Here's not my, my best. Here's my small little offering that lacks honor and respect and worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet if we fast forward to Romans 12, we, we know that we're called to be living sacrifices. That we're not called to just bring half-hearted offerings to God. That all of our life is an opportunity to worship God, isn't it? That we don't have to go to the temple and bring, you know, the lamb or the dove or the cow. But now, as temples of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture would say, we now bring our whole lives before God as sacrifices. So, so, so in my marriage and in my parenting and in my work and in my neighbor, everything that I do, my time, my mind, my heart, everything is a, an opportunity to, to lay before God and say, God, here is me. Here is my life. I want to honor you. I want to make much of you in all that I do. I'm not going to give you my leftovers. But it's so easy to do, isn't it? I, I don't like to bring up Money, but, but sometimes money can be a very good indicator of where my heart is <laughs> because math just doesn't lie, right? I mean, I can, I can try to manipulate math. I was never a math guy, um, but two plus two is always four. And it's, you know, maybe in a postmodern culture, well, it could be five. It could be the, no, it, it's always four. And so when I look at my money that comes in and goes out, like I, I can say it just doesn't, it doesn't lie. It tells me where my heart is, where I spend, where, where my money goes, right? I mean, is all my money going to things to help me be comfortable? Is all my money going to things to, to make my little kingdom that much better? And so I have to evaluate that constantly to say, you know, where, where's money going to help brothers and sisters in Christ in need or, 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 or to help the, the mission go forth or, or the kingdom of God or, or to help my neighbor or, or to help my, my family, whatever it is, or is it all just going toward me? Is it just half-baked worship? How about my time or our time? Time can also reveal where my heart is. You know, when I have a free, you know, some free time, like where do, what do I do with it? <laughs> is it just to make myself more comfortable, right? So, and, and again, nothing wrong. Maybe you need a nap. I mean, if you have kids and especially little kids, a nap can be the, you know, to the glory of God. Just nap it up to the glory of God. You, it's a good thing. We need rest, Right? But, but often when I have some free time, it, it, it's like, man, I just I wish I had more free time. If I had free time, I would do this. And, it, and a lot of times it just involves just the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. But, but how could I redeem that, that time to, to serve other people, to help other people? Is, is, is it an opportunity for when I finally have that free moment, instead of binging you know, those um, reruns of Friends that we've seen 98,000 times, Maybe it's the time to just be with the Lord and pray and, and be in the scriptures. Now, I'm not trying to guilt or shame and just go, oh, geez, here we go. Like, okay, if I watch Netflix, I'm going to hell. No, I'm not saying that. But we do watch a lot of Netflix, amen? 
But, but here's God, you know, at times he gives us these, these opportunities. It was funny, I, I, um, yesterday, and again, this is sound, might sound a little self-righteous, I'm not trying to be, but, um, but my wife was out running some errands, and I was home with, with my little girl, June. She's like seven months and just the cutest baby in the, in the universe. Um, don't even try to compare it to any, any of your kids. She's just cuter. Um, but um, I, lo- I love her so much. And, uh, and so I find myself on the floor with her, and, and she's at the stage where you can't leave the room because she freaks out. And, uh, and so you just, you're always tethered to her. Um, and, and yet I found myself, you know, nothing, there's no noise going on. I think Noah was off playing, doing something. It was just really quiet. And I just found myself just kind of thanking God, just thank you for these just quiet moments. Like we don't have a lot of quiet moments in our house, just a lot of chaos all the time just because there's a lot of people in there. Um, but, but just a little moment, just to thank you, God. Just for this little girl, for my life, for your grace. Again, nothing, nothing big and profound. But you know what my temptation was, honestly, in that moment? Turn on Netflix, right? I've got to catch up on some, some shows. But just to have the, those little moments, and sometimes God gives us those little gifts with time, and how do we use that, that time for his, his glory? But, but it also can reveal where my heart is at times. How about frustrations in daily life? How do we respond? Right? I mean, you go, you go to the, the mechanic and you find out, oh, geez, you know, $1,000. There goes our savings. We get frustrated, right? Things aren't going the way that they're supposed to, to go. A few months ago, you know, we had a power line go down in our house, and now we have to fix this, this power line. It's costing way more money than we wanted or anticipated. There's a big shot to our savings, right? How do I respond in those, those moments? How about when good things come in our lives? I think we always focus on the negative, you know, when things aren't going well, but what about good things? Like, do we actually thank God for them? Like when the meeting went really well and the job's going really well and marriage seems to be going really well right now and the kids seem to be healthy and happy and they're not sick and they're not flipping out. Like, like do we thank God for that? Like, thank you, God, just, just for a good meeting. Like we had a great elder deacon meeting yesterday. I just was thanking God for that. They don't always go well. They're usually mad at me for something. Not always, but, but no, I, I, just, I was thanking God, right? I mean, it's always we're so dwelled on the negative. We, we dwell on the external, but, but do we thank God for the things that are happening? Or do we only see what's lacking? And then how about like Sundays when we come to worship? Do we come joyfully expectant on Sundays? Are, are we desperate to hear from God in his word, to, to sing his praises and be reminded of his grace with God's people? Or do we come going, okay, God, I'm doing my time. Now, if you're like me, there's probably some conviction in all of those things. There's a sense of, oh, yeah, geez, money and time and worship. And I mean, I don't always come. I come with half-baked worship all the time. I, I don't live as a living sacrifice all the time. I don't give my best at work all the time or to my, my wife or to my kids or to my spouse or, or my friends. I, I, don't, I come on Sundays. I'm just lucky to get here with all the, the kids. I'm just happy to make it in the room, right? I don't always come with, with joyful exuberance to, to hear the word of God. That's not always me. And I would say to you, that's normal. That's part of our experience. But what's so beautiful about the gospel, and this is the last point, is that there's a solution for resting in God's love. We may be looking at our circumstances saying, I don't think God loves me, but there's a solution for 
changing that narrative and resting in God's love because we're all guilty of this half-hearted kind of worship, just like Israel. Like, don't, don't go, oh, jeez, Israel. I wish they would just get their act together. That's us, right? Bringing our lame little lamb with a broken leg and saying, here you go, God. Remember how Malachi started. Hear these words. I have loved you. We could go to Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when our worship is half-baked. That God has given us a solution and a way for us to come and rest in his, his love. And he reminded them in, in Malachi uh, in 11, if you look at verse 11, for that from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. If we go to John chapter four, God is seeking out true worshipers that are going to worship him in spirit and in, in truth. And it has nothing to do with you. It's about the father who seeks out worshipers through his, his son. That he's given us a solution that we can look at our externals, we can look at our circumstances and go, I don't think God loves us, but the reality is that we know he loves us tremendously because he sent a true worshiper, Jesus Christ. The one who worshiped the Father perfectly, the one who made the perfect sacrifice, the one who is the perfect high priest, the one who was perfect in every way, was sinless in every way. His, his righteousness is the one that we receive in faith. So that now we can worship God purely. We can worship that even when we bring a half-hearted, baked worship, guess what? Christ makes that offering acceptable. Did you know that this morning? You don't have to muster up some emotions this morning. It's Christ stands as our mediator and as our intercessor. And if we're in, in, by faith in him, he makes that offering pleasing in the sight of God. Do you believe that this morning? That's how the gospel works. And, and I think there's a lot of bad teaching, a lot of bad theology that says, no, it's about me and my enthusiasm. It's about me and mustering up some, some faulty joy. That's not how this works. It's all about the object of your worship, not how you feel in the moment. And I'm not saying your feelings don't matter either. They do. The Spirit of God is working in, in transforming our, our feelings and our affections, and we want more of, of that. But we can come every Sunday, and we can come on Monday as a living sacrifice, knowing that Jesus Christ stands in our place even when we're not feeling it. And says, well done, my faithful servant. I've taken your place. I'm your high priest. I'm laying down the offerings that you are not that good at laying down. I've stood in the gap. I've died. I've risen on your behalf. And now we're freed to worship God freely and fully because we know that we're already accepted in him. I love the way Joe, he, he says it a lot. Um, no knock on you, Joe. But I love the little phrase you always say. Whether you're in, I'm just going to paraphrase, the uh, Joe standard version. Uh, if you're <laughs> in the, the depths, you're in the low points, you're struggling, or you're on the top of the mountain, we can still worship Christ with full joy, right? We can. Because like, it's not our circumstances that dictate whether God loves us or not. right? I know some of you in this room are just, parenting is really hard right now, and I, I get that. And marriage is hard right now, and the job is hard right now. And some of us have, have sickness that's really difficult, and anxiety, and worry, and finances, and all kinds of, of things right now. But even in the midst of those things, 
we can still acknowledge those things, right? I, I, I'm not for happy, clappy Christianity that just like, oh, everything's great, everything. Sometimes things aren't great. But we can acknowledge those things, but we also can still, in the midst of those things, as Paul would say in Corinthians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, we can live in that tension and worship God because our circumstances don't dictate our joy. Our circumstances don't dictate how God sees us. I read uh, this morning to our, our worship team, um, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, the reason why we can approach God boldly and faithfully in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, Hebrews 10, 19, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So in Christ, we can approach the throne of grace even when our worship is half-baked. And we don't have to doubt his love because his love was shown and proved and evidenced by the fact that the Son of God came into human history and he laid his life down in our place for our sins. He didn't just say from heaven, I love you. He actually demonstrated his love for sinners like you and me by being a sacrificial lamb for us. And so I always want to get theology and biblical doctrine and and biblical teaching out of the clouds and, and try to get it kind of down on the ground and, and, the, and some of the things I'm talking about this morning may seem like, man, that's just like big ideas. But there is something so practical about understanding that Jesus is our high priest. And that his righteousness, his perfect record is now ours by faith in him. Because like I said, you can come and just not feeling it. But know that our sacrifice and our worship is still acceptable to God. To know there's times where you're going to lose your mind and say things you regret, but we know there's still grace and there's forgiveness and that, that we're still pleasing in the sight of God. He doesn't banish us. That, that when seasons of doubting God's love, because we see all the circumstances of our lives and we go, God, how, how can it be? It just seems like I'm just not feeling it and I, I feel like everything's broken down around me. That even in texts like this, we can rest in the fact that Jesus Christ has become everything that we need and more. He is sufficient and superior in every way. We can rest in him. That he's making you new and he's making the entire universe new. And also, I think another thing when I think about kind of theology getting on, on the ground is that God gives us these very simple, what I call means of grace to help us understand these things and grow in these things. That, that, that in his kindness, he doesn't just say, okay, here's, here's the Bible, now just go and live. But he gives us these means of grace. He gives us, obviously, the word of God to remember his promises. Daily, we can sit with the word. Thank you, ladies, for, for leading the charge in Bible study and James and men, James, or whatever book you decide you're going to read, right? We, we want to, to, part of that is just resting in God's promise, like hearing those again and going, this is who God is. This is how God works. This is what he's done in human history. Like, I need to hear that again constantly, right? Sunday mornings, wherever. City groups. He gives us other believers 
to encourage us, to build us up, to teach us, to offer us wise counsel. We don't have to walk this alone. We don't have to walk alone. We have this community of faith to do this together. That's God's grace and God's kindness towards us. That even when we're doubting God's love, we don't have to do that alone. That he gives us other believers to encourage us and remind us of these things. We have, we have the sacraments, the, the Lord's Supper, baptism, right? To, to, to see a visible, visible uh, stamp of, of what God has done for us in the gospel, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And you need to taste that every single week. And see it in baptism, reminding us of the, 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 the new life that God offers us, the cleansing, the forgiveness of baptizing us into the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and also baptizing us into a new family of God. We have prayer and we have spiritual habits. We have great Christian literature to, to build us up in the faith. We have preaching. We have generosity of, of time and money and service, remembering the suffering service who modeled us a life of generosity and a life of service and how God works in and through that. Very simple means of grace. So that when we find ourselves looking at our circumstances and going, I don't know if God's even here. <clears throat> He uses all of those things to open our eyes to him. And so my prayer for us this week was to be able to, wherever you are this morning, maybe you're just like Malachi and Israel, or I should say Israel, and saying, well, show me how you love me, God. It seems like you don't. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe you find yourself just kind of coming and just uh, giving your half-baked worship to God, life. But my prayer has been that you would find rest in this reality that Jesus does accept us even when our worship is half-baked. And it's because of what he's done, not because of what you've done. And I was thinking about the Lord's Supper, too. And years ago, we're, we're about to celebrate eight years as a church. And uh, years ago, when we were talking about worship and just when we gathered on Sundays, one of the ideas that came up was, you know, we, we'd like to do the Lord's Supper every week. And one of the things that people used to say was, well, if you do the Lord's Supper every week, it's just going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, it's going to lose its power. It's going to be too traditional, whatever that means. Like, if you just do something all the time, it's not going to have any meaning after a while. But what I've realized over the years, and, and I, I can also give a bunch of testimonies of you that have helped serve the communion and been part of it every week, is that it hasn't lost any power at all because of text like Malachi 1. That we can come and we have this visual every week that Jesus Christ broke his body represented by the, bre the bread and, and he, he shed his blood for us to, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That I need, there's weeks where I need to be running to the table just to be reminded that, that God, my worship has been half-baked this week and I, I need your forgiveness, I need your grace and I can come and I can receive from him what he's already done for me. And we need these constant reminders weekly. Maybe you're like me, and maybe you say yes and amen, I do need those things. But this is a spiritual meal that God meets us by his spirit when we're reminded of his, his body and broken blood for us. And then we also remind her from 1 Corinthians 11 that he is coming again to restore all things. And so this meal is meant to, to, to create in us hope as well. That when we look at our circumstances and things aren't going well, we go, we still have hope in Christ because he's making all things new, me and the entire universe. So if you are a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. We'll have two lines in the front. Break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies, we have gluten-free, nut-free bread in the middle. Uh, there, please take that.
And if you're not a believer in Christ, we, we want you to consider that. And we have some prayers in our uh, worship guide that you can look at and think on. If you want to talk more about that, we'd love to, to chat um, about that as well. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for the honesty of Scripture. Thank you that even your own people at times doubt your love. And yet at the same time, you show us ways in which we don't have to, and we don't have to live there and stay there. That we can rest in your love because it was demonstrated to us and shown to us in very personal ways in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. That the same God is at work in our lives, and he's at work in the world, and he'll continue to be at work in the world until he returns. And that you haven't left us in the dark. So wherever we are this morning, God, maybe we do feel kind of disconnected from you. Maybe the external stuff of life and the circumstances of life just feel overwhelming right now. And maybe we are saying, I, I just, I don't know, God, do you still love me? I pray the Spirit of God would convict. I pray the Spirit of God would open eyes to see that this high priest, Jesus Christ, has come to offer his life as a perfect sacrifice. And by faith in him, we have everything we need, even when our worship is half-baked. Help us see that. Help us believe that. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.